Welcome to On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin at Ms. Magazine. As you know, we're a show that reports, rebels, and we tell it just like it is. This is a special episode brought to you with a live audience from the Irvine Barclay Theater with an outstanding group of panelists as part of the 2021-2022 Supreme Court term in review. Lots to unfold in this year's Supreme Court term, and my panelists get right to it. So sit back, take a listen, and join us on this journey such that we can understand what might be coming for the next Supreme Court term and also for our American democracy. In the morning when I rise Oh, in the morning when I rise Oh, in the morning when I rise Gonna rise up breathing Gonna rise up hoping Gonna rise with equal justice under the law For my brothers, my sisters and me When I rise, oh, when I rise Oh, when I rise I'll be hoping for equal justice under the law for my brothers, my sisters, all my people and me. Good morning. Good morning, good morning. My name is H. Adam Harris, and I want to welcome you to the 12th annual Supreme Court Term in Review Conversation, hosted by the University of California, Irvine School of Law and Ms. Magazine. Today's conversation is moderated by our very own Chancellor's Professor, Michelle Goodwin. And yes, oh, you all are ready today. I love it. <laughs> And of course, our esteemed panelists. That's you all. <laughs> Welcome. We. We are thrilled to see so many of you here in person today at the Irvine Barclay Theater, and I'm sending an additional hello to those of you watching via live stream. The root of the word awesome is awe, and awe is about experiencing wonder and terror at exactly the same time. <laughs> These days are some awe sometimes, <laughs> heavy on the terror for many, but hopefully pierced by some brief moments of wonder. Today we're gonna to hear from these experts about what has come and hopefully what can be. I come from the world of arts and we love these words by Toni Morrison. I know the world is bruised and bleeding and though it is important not to ignore its pain, it is also critical to refuse to succumb to its malevolence. Like failure, chaos contains knowledge and information and can lead to wisdom. This is precisely the time when artists go to work. There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. This is how civilizations heal. 
I'm thrilled we've got these experts here today to help us strategize, to help us think, to help us make our way through, and to heal. I turn it over to you. Thank you so much. Quite spectacular. Thank you, Orange County. We love you. <laughs> I'm joined on stage by Dean Erwin Shimerinsky, Berkeley School of Law, but all from UCI. <laughs> Professor Mary Ziegler, who's joined us now, left Florida for California, is at UC Davis. My dear friend, Professor Aziza Ahmed. Mark Joseph Stern, senior writer for Slate Magazine. Regina Mahone, senior editor, The Nation. Marianne Franks, a distinguished professor of law at the University of Miami Law School. And I'm Michelle Goodwin, and we'll get this show started. <laughs> so, Erwin, I, I first want to turn to you, because I'm wondering if we should stop writing together. I know we love doing it, Erwin, but when I think about it, about six or seven years ago, we wrote a piece for the Harvard Law Review, and we said, if there's ever a pandemic, <laughs> Here's how the response should be. <laughs> we wrote a piece for the Georgetown Law Review saying that religion should never be a basis for harming others, just in case religion was ever used in that way. And then about five years ago, we said, well, okay, if in case abortion's ever threatened, uh, here's the roadmap for what we can do to restore that. That was in the Texas Law Review. So Erwin, there's too much predictive value with what we do. I mean, I love writing with you, but I wonder, Erwin. <laughs> Let me start by saying how wonderful it is to be back at UCI, how much it feels like being home again. And Michelle, thank you for inviting me. Thank you, Erwin. I'd like to say that we were prescient, but the reality is the writing has been on the wall for a long time. And once the Republicans blocked Merrick Garland. Once Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away and Amy Coney Barrett was rushed through. Once Donald Trump got to put three people on the Supreme Court, it was pretty clear as to what was going to happen. So this term was in one sense not a surprise, but yet it was shocking to see decision after decision coming down in a conservative way. After Justice Barrett replaced Justice Ginsburg, I made two predictions. One is we're going to see a lot of conservative 6-3 decisions. And the other is we'd see very few liberal 5-4 decisions because after all, now the liberal justice when you get two votes rather than one. This year, the Supreme Court decided 60 cases with signed opinions after brief and argument. 19 were 6-3 decisions. Nine were 5-4 decisions. And in every major case, the conservative position won. In every case, the conservative justices moved the law very far to the right. You know, Erwin, on that point, just so that we level set a little bit in terms of what it means conservative versus liberal, uh, we're going to get to the Dobbs decision, uh, not quite yet, but just, just a level set with that, 
Roe v. Wade was a seven to two opinion. Five of those seven justices were Republican appointed and Justice Blackmun, who wrote the opinion in Roe, was put on the court by Richard Nixon. So I think what you're talking about is something that is beyond what we've seen before in terms of what is considered conservative. Let me add this. Add it, Irwin, add it. <laughs> Planned Parenthood versus Casey that reaffirmed Roe versus Wade in 1992 was five to four. All five justices of the majority have been appointed by Republican presidents. Harry Blackman by Richard Nixon, John Paul Stevens by Gerald Ford, Senator O'Connor and Anthony Kennedy by Ronald Reagan, David Souter by President George H.W. Bush. But I think this reflects how the Republican Party has changed dramatically and how much issues like abortion, like guns, and like separation of church and state now animate the Republican Party. If you want to understand this term of the court, you don't do so by looking at judicial methodology. You certainly don't do so by precedent. You do so by looking at the Republican platform. These justices this term were very much about implementing the Republican platform into constitutional law. Well, that's something that we talked about in that Texas Law Review piece on abortion, and we're going to get there. I want to start with you, Aziza, because we are at a period of pandemic. Uh, we're so grateful for our audience that is here, as well as our audience that is tuning in uh, virtually. This is our first time since the beginning of the pandemic to actually be together for a Supreme Court term in review live. Aziza, there were cases that were heard by the court that addressed matters of COVID. Give us a breakdown of what that was like, because there are cases that there's been so, these cases have been so unsettling for some in terms of the outcomes that it would be easy to forget that we're in the middle of a pandemic and how the court has responded to it. Right, yeah, thank you, Michelle. Thank you for that question and thank you for this event. It's truly amazing. Um, I, so I think the story of how the court has responded to the pandemic is a story of the executive branch trying to take action and the courts undermining them. I, I think that's basically the way to see it and you could read it in two different ways. You could read it as a story of politics um, and the court sort of asserting its authority, but also in the constitutional register of um, the development of a new doctrine, you know, the, um, a, a doctrine which is basically gutting um, the administrative state of its powers. And I think all of us on this panel are probably engaging with this in some way because we're seeing that the Roberts Court is very interested in dismantling the administrative state. I think the story in the COVID uh, response starts really with the last term um, with the um, CDC eviction moratorium. And that's the case in which um, the court essentially said, no, the CDC cannot have this eviction moratorium. They're essentially overstepping their power as an agency. They can't um, essentially keep people in their homes. And this was going against what public health authorities and what science authority, you know, scientists really thought was the best practice at the time. Making people homeless, housing insecurity was going to lead to an increase in number in COVID cases. And in fact, that is what we saw. And then in this term, we had two very prominent cases, at least two very prominent cases. There were lots of cases on the shadow docket, but one, uh, the two cases I'm thinking of now are on. And the give me just one yeah. moment for shadow docket yeah. and a bit of a shout out to Stephen Vladek, wherever you are, Stephen. Yeah. But, but what's the shadow docket for folks that may not know? Yeah, so the shadow docket is 
the cases that essentially the court is deciding without engaging with fully. And you know, typically those might have been cases um, that could have been decided um, uh, sort of in an easy way without oral arguments, without a hearing. Um, but now the court is taking major decisions through this shadow docket. And, and you know, we could critique the court for not essentially letting us air our opinions, letting us have our day in court. Um, and so here, you know, and back, so back to the COVID, but back to the COVID cases, yes. we had two cases about um, the vaccine mandates, one regarding um, OSHA, um, the Occupational Safety and, uh, uh, sorry, um, OSHA, which does Workplace Regulation on Health, of course, I'm not going to remember the acronym right now, and, um, and Biden v. Uh, Missouri, and in both of these cases, um, there, was, there were vaccine mandates in play, and the court in NFIB v. OSHA basically said that, um, the, again, the administrative agency was overstepping its bounds. They could not implement this vaccine mandate. Um, in Biden v. Missouri, they did uphold the vaccine mandate, but on the same grounds, I think if you really look at the cases together, even though they seem contradictory, what the court was basically saying is that the administrative agency has the authority in this case, and the administrative agency does not have the authority in this case. In other words, Congress gave the agency that authority or not. Um, and again, sort of keeping power um, sort of out of the administrative agencies. In, in many so more broadly, I'm wondering if anyone on, on the panel might want to add to that. How do we understand then the Supreme Court and how it has approached its jurisprudence during this period of COVID? Mark? I can jump in. Yeah, please do. <laughs> the Supreme exactly. Court's conservative supermajority hates government. It hates a Not to put it mildly, Mark. <laughs> it hates a government that works, especially a government that works for the people, the people who are most vulnerable, the people who need protections in federal law, the people who rely on these many administrative agencies, the EPA, the Department of Labor, the Department of Justice, Department of Health and Human Services, that do the daily work of interpreting and enforcing the law. Federal statutes do not enforce themselves. We need agencies to do it. And the six conservative justices hate those agencies. What would be the response to folks that say, well, no, they don't hate agencies? Mark, where in the world are you getting this from? Well, I encourage that hypothetical person to read these opinions, <laughs> because what you see is this incredibly bizarre depiction of beady-eyed bureaucrats scurrying around the bowels of the government, trying to seize everyone's liberty through the most underhanded and undemocratic ways popular. And I think the fundamental irony of these decisions is that the conservative justices will come out and say, we are defenders of democracy because we will not allow these unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats to be making these major decisions for Americans. You know who should be making those decisions instead? Unelected judges with <laughs> lifetime tenure who have no constituency, who have no elections, who can do whatever they want with accountability, we're the ones who should be making these choices for the American people. And they frame that as a coup for democracy, and I think it looks a lot more like a plain old coup. So, so what do those cases mean? Good job. On the ground. And, you know, Aziza, you invited us to think about the last term. And the last term was a COVID case that involved prescription medications that were sent in the mail. Does anyone want to speak to that just in terms of the one prescription medication that were singled out 
out of 22,000. Yeah, sure. So, you know, here's a case in which um, the ACOG, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, advocates, women's health advocates, Sister Song, reproductive justice organizations are basically begging the FDA in the context of the um, pandemic to say, please let us access abortion medication via telemedicine. We can't access, we can't go to the clinics, we can't go to the doctors, it's unsafe. Abortion's being declared a non-essential service. Of course, we all know that abortion's an essential service. Um, and um, uh, the, the Supreme Court basically said no. We're going to, in that case, they said defer to um, the FDA's authority. Now, what's, but what, yeah, uh, oddly enough. Oh, go <laughs> at it. Yes, oddly exactly, enough. yes. Um, but you know, I, I, I will say that I, re I read that decision about 400 times, and I, there's a, he, um, Justice Roberts says, a politically accountable agency. And I just think, and I always, I kept thinking, if he's trying to defer to experts, why did he put politically accountable in there? If he's trying to defer to experts, why did he put politically accountable in there? And I think it's because it comes back to this question of democracy, you know, like who's going to actually make these decisions? How are we going to bring, how, how, how do we understand and think about politics in the context of expert authority? But there we have a funny situation where essentially Roberts is willing to say, oh no, I'm going to defer to the FDA because the FDA is essentially limiting access to abortion. Well, I want to pick up on this conversation and weave you in, Erwin, in terms of this question on the administrative state and what this means in light of the EPA decision from the court and whether that reconciles with what we've heard from Aziza and Mark. West Virginia versus EPA involves the ability of the EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions from power plants. Greenhouse gas emission power plants are a major source of what leads to climate change. The Supreme Court last week, in a six to three decision, said that the EPA lacked the authority to do this under the statute. It's very much what Mark was talking about. Chief Justice Roberts wrote for the court and said, when there's a major question, Congress has to give the agency clear guidance in terms of how to act. He said, this is a major question and the statute wasn't sufficiently specific. Now the problem is the court never defines what's a major question. The court never tells us what's sufficiently specific. So I think the court here has opened the door to challenges to countless federal statutes giving agencies power. This is true with regard to the other statutes that give the EPA the authority to regulate environmental hazards and pollution. It's true of all the statutes that give to agencies the power to protect public health and safety. It's true with regard to all of the statutes that give agency authority. The Supreme Court has tremendously opened the door to challenges to all aspects of the administrative state. I thought Justice Kagan made a really important point in dissent. She said, for decades, the conservatives have said, follow the text. She said, I even gave a speech saying, we're all textualists now. So the text gives the EPA this authority, but it's not sufficiently specific according to the court. She says, inevitably, Congress has to write statutes that give broad authority to agency. Now, all of these statutes are constitutionally, or at least from an administrative law perspective, vulnerable. I think you have to see this as part of a pro-business agenda on the part of the Roberts Court. And now the Roberts Court here has really opened the door to business to be able to challenge almost anything, because no one knows what's a major question 
or what's sufficiently specific? So, Erwin, you mentioned textualism, and there's been a healthy dose of conversation that may be confusing about what in the world is textualism, what in the world is originalism, and were the framers of the Constitution actually originalist and textualist themselves? Can you give a little bit of a view of that? Textualism relates to statutes, and it's the view that what the court should do is follow the plain language of the statute and pay, pay no attention to legislative history. The problem is that words are inherently ambiguous. And what I find courts frequently do is say, here's the words, the plain meaning is, and I look at it and say, I don't think that's the plain meaning, I think it's <laughs> ambiguous. And of course they find that the plain meaning to confirm their own ideological bias. Originalism relates to constitutional interpretation, and this is the idea that the meaning of a constitutional provision is fixed when it's adopted, so it means the same thing today as when it was enacted. So the Second Amendment, the court says, means what it does in 1791 when it was passed, or 1868 when the 14th Amendment was adopted. The problem, of course, is that history is ambiguous. The problem is that the world is so very different today than it was then. I mean, take the case about whether a football coach can pray on the field. Does it make sense to say in 1791 could high school football coaches <laughs> pray on the field? <laughs> or in terms of the Second Amendment, the weapons today are so very different. Or when we think about how rural the society no was yeah, compared to what it is now. Or does it make sense to look at history in terms of abortion rights because it wasn't a safe medical procedure in 1791 or 1868? Chief Justice John Marshall said in 1819, we must never forget that it's a constitution we're expounding. Constitution may be adapted and endure for ages to come. Unfortunately, the conservatives on the Roberts Court have completely forgotten that, and that it's supposed to be a living constitution. And not to mention the fact that much of this is something that has been established just in recent years. I mean, it's, these are not matters that go back centuries at all, right? At, at best, we're talking about a couple decades, right, of this framework. And if we're going to look at history, why is the only relevant history 1791 of 1868? <laughs> Many of the people in this care. audience wouldn't count back in that time. Roe versus Wade was 49 years old. Take the Second Amendment from 1791 into 2008. Now, one federal, state, or local law that regulated guns was found unconstitutional. Why does the court ignore that history? Well, on that note, Marianne Franks, I want to turn to you about this Bruin decision and to help our audience understand uh, that case, its context, and how we can understand it moving forward. Well, I think it really ties into this question about history, originalism, selective readings of the Constitution, and one of the most useful frameworks, I think, for this is to think about what is happening with these interpretations of the Constitution as being effectively fundamentalist. So if you think about what religious fundamentalism looks like, it's this emphasis on saying you have a very specific reading of certain words, and you invest yourself with the authority of, well, that's what the original authors of this text really meant, or you invest yourself with this kind of ahistorical feeling about what these words mean, and just like with religious fundamentalism, what it really turns out to be is it just so happens that the original meaning or the textual meaning is exactly what serves your interests. And this is what's happening all the time now with this court, um, that, that we're seeing constitutional fundamentalism on this really deep level. 
that on the one hand, we can ask, why look at this history and not this other? Why look at history at all, given the fact that when it serves the conservative theocratic agenda, history sometimes matters, sometimes not, so long as you can read history to get to the result they want. When I think about how you can encapsulate this approach, I think about the moment as people were speculating or there was concerns about how was the election going to go between, you know, so tight between Clinton and Trump, um, you know, what's going to happen here? And Trump was asked, are you going to respect the results of this election? And what did he say? I'll respect the results of this election if I win. And right there, and we know what happens when he doesn't, right? But, but right there, you have everything you need to know about this particular philosophy, which is the rules and the, and the text and the history and whatever else people are saying goes into their interpretive project. They care about it if it lets them win. So what does that mean in Bruin? And it's such an interesting one to hit when we think about Bruin happening and then Dobbs happening, because when you think about the different uses of history and the different conceptions of who has a right and what is a pre-existing right and what is a super right and what is not a right at all, very interesting. But in Bruin, essentially, the court says, yeah, well, there is this really long-standing law in New York. It's, it's been around for 100 years or so. They want to regulate um, certain carriage of guns in public and they want to say that you have to show a special reason for wanting to have these weapons because of course in public dangerous. in public right not because, not in your home right, right. because right. the backup you know we not in your garage you know we've got man cave exactly. so forth. <laughs> <laughs> not in the privacy of your own home because the court had already done a very weird thing before and said you know all this time people thought that those words well-regulated militia meant something and in 2008 the court says it doesn't though and decides that they're going to use that as a way to interpret a right to self-defense in the home using a handgun, none of which is in the text of the Constitution. But this adds onto it by saying it's not just in your home, because if you have the right to defend yourself in your home, well, then you ought to be able to defend yourself when you are freaking out um, about the person next to you on the subway. And the objection here was to say that, you know, history and tradition do not allow for the kinds of regulation that New York had put into place after contemplating, because of New York's own unique considerations about what its population needs and, of course, the density of its population, the court says you can't do any of that. The Second Amendment itself takes the right to sort of even have that conversation out of your hands because that's a pre-existing right. And it's impossible not to think about this in contrast and in comparison to what we get into Dobbs but not just for the reasons of what, does history matter or is there a right or do you have to show certain cause, but think about what this entire interpretation rests on, which is not just that you can say, I want guns and I want them everywhere. You have to tie it to something that sounds, I think, facially plausible. What does the court say? It's self-defense, which sounds great. What it does sound great to it many people. <laughs> and the notion of self-defense in criminal law is that if there is a serious threat, imminent threat, of grievous bodily injury or possibly death, then you are allowed to defend yourself. Notice how that concept doesn't have anything necessarily to do with guns, right? It just has to do with the concept of proportionality and eminence. And then think about what that means when the court says states are not allowed to make their own assessments, largely speaking, about how we should think about what is appropriate for self-defense. We're just gonna take it out of your hands altogether. In contrast, right, to what the court's going to tell us about women facing pregnancy. And we're going to get there. Right. But I want to hear about the dissent, too, right? Like, yes. that's the majority's take. What does, how does the dissent respond? Because these are not just majority takes, but we've got dissenters. So what happens in that case in terms of our dissents? 
Well, the students are doing a good job of trying to <coughs> none of this makes sense, right? Mm -hmm. That none of what you're doing here as a matter of interpretation makes sense. And this is, I think, the most chilling thing about this term, which is that it's not just that we're looking at uh, the kinds of conclusions that we all knew were coming in some ways, because, of course, the reason to have um, to, to have kind of violated the entire system of putting somebody in place for the Merrick Garland seat. And of course, all these seats that Trump was able to secure, of course, this is about getting to certain types of conclusions. But when you have a complete rejection of the law, right? The dissent sure. points out and says, oh, you're taking, you say that part of history that would go against this conclusion. We don't count that kind of history because it's too different from what we're doing here. And then they skip ahead a few more decades and say, oh, but we like this piece of history. And Mark, you're nodding to that. Fill in some of this dissent. I, I mean, I really want to hear from Mary on this because she is the historian who can just destroy Clarence Thomas's <laughs> totally amateur hour, dilettantish pseudo history, which is just, it's pathetic. You know, I just want to say at the outset, none of the justices are historians. None of them have any real formal training in history. They are all flying by the seat of their pants here and cherry picking, but at least the liberals admit that. And when they engage in history, it's to spar with the conservatives. When Clarence Thomas writes, he has an almost pathological certainty of his own correctness, as if when he <laughs> speaks these things about history, they come into being as truth and cannot be contested. And I I think that Justice Breyer's dissent in Bruin is very good, but it's hard to argue with something who believes that he is essentially just spouting the, the divine truths of a deity rather than acting as a judge, <laughs> trying his level best to interpret the Constitution. Well, Mary, you know, Mark has pivoted to you and says that he wants to hear from you, although Mark has given us quite a bit right there. <laughs> I had to get it off my chest. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, yes. It's the Goldilocks approach to history in Bruin for Justice Thomas, right? So it's like this history is too old to tell us anything relevant about the Second Amendment. And this history is too Texas, because Texas, God knows, you know, when it comes to guns, Texas is the outlier. That's not a place where people have guns or regulate guns. And then this history is too close, you know, to the ratification of the 14th Amendment. So it, it, it's, it's, it's so obviously cherry picking that when I've been in conversation with conservatives, they have a hard time defending the history in Bruin, um, that, which is saying something. Um, and I think there's also... Uh, it's in keeping with the way Justice Thomas talks about history generally in, in that it's very racialized, right? So there's the idea that uh, people of color were denied their rights to bear arms in the aftermath of the Civil War. And so the solution to racism is basically more guns because we don't have enough guns now and clearly more guns have been helping with the problem of racism. We've all seen in the abolition of racism that we've all been experiencing how wonderfully it's going and we need only to march further down that road, um, but, which is in keeping, again, with his jurisprudence on abortion. He's had a very racialized narrative about, an incredibly a historical narrative that essentially equates the eugenic legal reform movement of the early 20th century with the family planning movement of the 20th century, which early 20th century, which is wrong. Right, which and then those movements wrong. with the population control movement of the 1970s, which is infinitely more complex than Justice Thomas suggests, and all of that with individual pregnant people having abortions yeah. today, which doesn't make sense. But again, the idea is that sort of the, the, the people most invested in ending racism are the conservative justices on the Supreme Court. I, you know, I, I will, I news, will say, everyone. <laughs> say, say this, you know, years ago, I, I took my daughter when she was about uh, seven or eight years old to uh, Supreme Court uh, to hear uh, two cases in oral arguments, and Justice Breyer actually read to her in a little group of, of, of kids, the cat in the hat, it's really cute, yeah, a picture of it. 
But the fascinating thing uh, was that she, you know, tugged on my sleeve at one point and asked why Justice Thomas looked asleep. <laughs> and because uh, he really did, he, his eyes were closed, and the seven-year-old noticed it. And uh, and I and here's what I will say is that he looked asleep. Today, Justice Thomas is awake. Yep. But he's not woke. He is awake, <laughs> but he is not woke. Erwin, would you like to add any to this texture of Bruin, uh, majority or dissent? I think something occurred in Bruin that we've never seen before. Always before when the court has been originalist, it's used originalism to determine whether there's a constitutional right. This is the first time the Supreme Court has ever used originalism to limit what the government can do. Whenever the court before has found a fundamental right, like freedom of speech, or free exercise of religion, or privacy, the court has said the government can act if it meets what's called strict scrutiny, if its action is necessary to achieve a compelling purpose. Justice Thomas' opinion in Bruin says, we're not going to use strict scrutiny. Even if there's a compelling interest, it doesn't matter even if the government action is necessary. He said the only kind of government regulations of guns that will be allowed were those that were permitted in 1791 or maybe 1868. This is stunning because it gives Second Amendment rights a greater protection than any other right in the Constitution. And it truly weaponizes it. Go ahead, Mark. I just want to add one thing while I'm on my high horse, which is you might all be thinking, well, wait, this is, this is great. We're going back to 1791 with gun regulations, so people can only have muskets, right? People can only have... Cannons. Yeah, yeah, cannons at best, like no yes. AR-15, right. no semi-automatic handguns. But that's not what Thomas does. Instead, Thomas embraces one of the most overt forms of living constitutionalism that you will ever see on the Supreme Court when it comes to the types of weapons we're allowed to have, where he says, as soon as a weapon comes into common use, then the government is basically not allowed to uh, limit access to it. So if in 2023, there were a TikTok craze about bazookas, and millions of teenagers went out and bought bazookas and started doing, you know, it was the biggest thing. Everyone wanted their bazooka. They were sold out at Walmart. You had to get them on eBay. They would become Amazon. in common use, and they would gain constitutional protection. But at the same time, Thomas says that the government cannot impose a regulation unless that regulation existed in 1791. So when it comes to the guns uh, that we're guaranteed access to, it's just, you know, if they're around today, then we get, we get to have our hands on them. But when it comes to the regulations we're allowed to impose on those guns, we have to have a seance with James Madison and figure out what he would have wanted. <laughs> Well, you know, th this, what you're describing as a kind of selective reading of the Constitution, uh, perhaps even an opportunistic uh, reading of the Constitution, these words have been used to describe not only the Bruin case, but also Dobbs, uh, a case that is barely two weeks old in terms of the Supreme Court issuing the opinion, which has overturned Roe v. Wade. And Regina, I'd like to turn to you to set the stage about the Dobbs opinion. Where do you begin? <laughs> well, everyone knows, of course, um, Roe v. Wade, 1973, ruled that it, 
Now I have to look at my notes because I'm feeling nervous, so I apologize. Um, uh, okay, of course. Um, so it was decided um, under the 14th Amendment's Due Process Clause, um, which protects the right to privacy, and then Planned Parenthood v. Casey established the undue standard, undue burden standard. And so in the Dobbs decision, they've overturned both of those cases and basically gotten rid of both of those standards, um, and also are allowing states to basically introduce any any abortion ban. Um, I actually have the language. And, and to yeah. that, while you're looking yeah. that, that up, sure. right, so, so not only, and thank you very, very much, I mean, this has been very jarring, so I appreciate actually um, just how you're feeling, because there are, <laughs> seriously, because um, there have been marches across the country, there have been uh, women stuck on the sides of roads, found crying because they can't get to the appointment in another state. Uh, there are doctors who are wondering if they may be criminally punished in states like California, New York, and otherwise. Uh, some of you may have even read about a story of a 10-year-old girl who had to leave a state that has now um, imposed a trigger ban, which went into effect after Dobbs, um, after she had been raped and did not want to be a 10-year-old or 11-year-old mother. So I actually very much appreciate um, the energy that you bring to this because it's not an easy conversation. So I'm gonna come back to you in just a moment sure. and turn to you, Mary, uh, to help us understand the work that the majority did in this case. Yeah, I think to understand how extraordinary Dobbs is, it helps to understand of <coughs> Justice Alito's opinion leaked in early May, right? And lots of historians, so there were 19th century historians who were saying, this 19th century history is bad. I mean, and to give you a sense of what I mean by bad, there were three historians, I use the word loosely cited in the majority in Dobbs. <laughs> one of them is an expert on land and water management and wrote one work of history in his entire career, which was cited by the majority. A second was on the kind of board of directors of the National Right to Life Committee, which is, as you may or may not know, one of the largest national anti-abortion groups. And a third is a primarily a specialist in cr Christian ethics, who again, you know, had one foray into the history of anything, which happened to be about 19th century abortion law. By contrast, there's a, and then there was a separate part of the opinion um, about essentially stare decisis, right, when the court revisits its prior precedents um, that dealt with Roe's effect on American society. Um, I personally, to not cite anyone else, just me personally have written something like four books on this. <laughs> the, the court decided to cite not me, not other historians, and I, I, by the way, on the salient points, agree with historians who are opposed to legal abortion. Didn't cite any of us, cited the great historian Antonin Scalia. Because <laughs> if you're looking for a historian to say Roe alone polarized the United States, you will not find any. There are zero. You cannot find any, so the court had to go to Antonin Scalia. So everyone got to a say, great wow, Oh, th this Antonis. majority is bad, like this draft is terrible. And ostensibly what happened was nothing. The, the final draft and the leaked draft are in salient ways identical. And so one of the things that that tells you about Dobbs is not only that Dobbs will send shockwaves through our constitutional order, not only that the Supreme Court has destroyed a constitutional right that's 50 years old, but essentially that the court doesn't care what anybody else thinks about what it's doing, right? They had an opportunity to shore up the majority, to make it a more compelling majority. Um, they chose essentially to waive that opportunity and to say, this is perfect, there's no need to change it. And that, I, I mean, that's almost as extraordinary to me as the fact that the court took this case, the fact that the court 
dismantled abortion rights as quickly as it did. I was on record. I was in the New York Times at various points saying, no, no, they're not going to do it this fast because it'll damage the institution too much. And I had to basically go back to the New York Times and you write and I disagree. I'm an idiot. <laughs> because they didn't care about all the things I thought they cared about anymore because this court is so fundamentally different than anything we've seen. Tell us a little bit about the Mississippi case that the court decided to take up. What was that legislation? Yeah, so the, the law was a Mississippi um, ban on abortion at 15 weeks. Um, this is part of a kind of broader strategy the anti-abortion movement has had off and on since the 1980s to target viability. So Roe and Casey stood, among other things, for the proposition that there's a right to choose abortion until viability, which is the point at which there's a sort of relatively realistic chance of survival outside of the womb. There was a thought ever since Sandra Day O'Connor in the 80s criticized viability viability, that this might be kind of the Achilles heel. So you saw all over various states laws saying, okay, you can't have an abortion at 20 weeks because we found one expert who said fetal pain is possible at 20 weeks. There were laws, of course, you've heard of the, the so-called heartbeat bans at six weeks. All of those were different ways of getting at viability. Um, the reason the 15-week ban was so startling as a case for the court to take, there were only two states that had these laws. And if you know anything about the anti-abortion movement, that's extraordinary. That means nobody liked this law. Because generally, these laws go viral. There's a playbook that you can find on Google that was sent to legislators everywhere. There was no evidence. And the law was not in effect. So people should right. know that as well. Right. There was right. an injunction that was imposed against the law going. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But it, it was it was one of these, you know, when I, I would joke about this, that there were lots of abortion cases that were teed up to end abortion rights. And if you would ask me or lots of other folks, what are the best candidates? None of us would have said this law. So there's this sort of Mr. Right and Mr. Right now for the Supreme Court. Like, do you go for the thing that's <laughs> going to make you look better? Or do you just go for the first thing that you see? And the answer in Dobbs was Mr. Right now was this case. Um, because this was not, it didn't tee up any of the better arguments I think that the anti-abortion movement had made. I don't think people in the anti-abortion movement thought they were going to do this because it was sort of not a great idea. <laughs> well, and to that point, right, so, so what you're talking about, Ms. Uh, Mary, is the 15-week ban mm -hmm. on abortion. Regina made no exceptions for cases of rape or yeah. incest, right? right? But the Supreme Court decided to do something more than that, Regina. Well, the Mississippi <coughs> Attorney General went back to the court and said, actually, won't you consider just over, overturning Roe? Like, that's actually what we really want. And they didn't have to. And Roberts, in his concurring um, opinion, um, said you didn't have to. Um, and didn't support it, and in fact said that the law could have just stayed, you know, he agreed with the opinion that staying at 15 weeks, um, but in, instead Alito and the uh, ex extreme conservatives on the court. So what do you think was the difference then, right, between the, here's a 15-week ban on abortion, uh, there was an injunction imposed so that the law was not in effect, a brilliant, uh, a, a brilliant, statement even um, that uh, ruling from um, Judge Carlton Reeves at the district court level, read the footnotes even, where he takes Mississippi to task and uses the term gaslighting to describe what the state of Mississippi was doing in that case because Mississippi claimed that the law itself was to protect women, that this is why we're enacting that law. And he said that this is just pure gaslighting. But Aziza, there is a response. That's the majority what we've heard. But what about the dissent? Well, the dissent replies to the majority as well as the concurrences on several different points. So, you know, just to put on the table two other d dimensions of this, which is 
that um, Kavanaugh pretty strongly says in his concurrence that actually the court is acting neutrally because we are defer we're, we're not taking a position on this issue and we're going to leave it to the states to political process now now enter all the gerrymandering all the redistricting all the voting rights issues that are going on do state legislatures even represent the views of the people in some of the states anymore um, and you know but he's he says all right well, we're going to take the court we're going to keep it neutral we're just going to throw it back to the states and then Thomas, and he gets called out for this by the dissent, basically says, oh, look, you know, I know that those guys are all saying this is actually about abortion, but hey, we can just overturn everything now. You know, let's, we're with opening the door. With regard to privacy, right? He does privacy. put it, you yes, know, yes. Say, I'm sorry, says privacy. with regard to okay, privacy. Okay, so LGBT issues, family privacy, everything comes under contraception. But he makes an exception. Yes. Not everything in privacy. Yes, that's true. Where is the exception? That's true, lovey. Protects himself and Jenny. Save his own marriage. <laughs> I mean, he does. Yes, it's true. Protects me and Greg, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a marriage that could legitimately be under interrogation right now by a lot of people. Um, yeah, but I, um, yeah, so the dissent, um, you know, it's a powerful dissent. They, they write against all of these points. They say, hey, you can't call this neutral. Look at the impact this is having on people's lives. What are you talking about history, just to go back to our prior conversation? You want to go back to the 13th century to figure out how to deal with women's I, The appendix is laughable in the majority decision, all those laws from the 1800s mm -hmm. you know, that dealt with abortion. I mean, give me a break. This is Well, abortions were being performed by the pilgrims. Right. right? Benjamin right. Franklin wrote a book about how to perform a safe abortion. Right, right. The legal experts they go to here, you know, the fact that the legal experts themselves validated ideas about you know, culture and, you know, um, uh, the, we're involved in the witch trial. I mean, it's, it can't get, this is, this is next level, you know, and <laughs> I mean, the, it, it wasn't even as though, you know, Mary talked about legitimacy of the court, it, you know, and I think a lot of us were really counting on that, you know. That well, the court, I actually want to spend just one moment because yeah. I use this terminology of coverture because there are people who are really trying to understand and unpack nuance in yeah. this. So you or Mary want to talk about what coverture means at all? Oh, yeah, no. You know, me uh, too, either. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, sure. Uh, so coverture for, you know, many years um, and, until rather recently was the idea that, um, and some of you may have heard when you got married, I, I now pronounce you man and wife, right? So men remained men. They had the same legal rights they had before. Women became wives, and their, the idea was that their identities were literally covered by that of their husbands. So they were not allowed to own property. They weren't allowed to contract. They weren't really allowed to, to make wages. And unsurprisingly, they weren't really allowed to practice law. So you, don't, you, don't, you have to get into the late 19th century to find the first woman um, who was a member of a bar. So citing an authority on coverture for the proposition that there are no Multiple. abortion rights isn't going to be, you know, the answer would not come as a great surprise that the answer from that person would be that there would be no protection for lots of things involving women other than to ask their husbands what the answer and is. And the dissent. And, and that's actually a mild version. And then we'll get to the dissent and get you in here too, Erwin, because coverture was also the frame of law that was used to protect men who beat their wives. Yes. Yep. And who raped their Marital wives. Marital sexual yes. assault as well. Right? I mean, this, and these are lawyers that are cited by the majority who mm -hmm. write about coverture, right? So to really understand the context of not just you are sort of in the identity of your husband, but this is a framework within law that justified physical and sexual abuse of women uh, without protection under law. 
Yeah, and the race part of the majority is really extraordinary too. Um, they cite Justice Thomas for the idea that pro-choice folks are racist, and then they completely whitewash the 19th century history. Well, they right, whitewash their own history, right? right? Buck v. Bell, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes explains <laughs> yep. it very clearly that in that eugenics decision, Carrie Buck is a young white girl, mm -hmm. right? So this, you know, to your point, Mark, you know, sort of Justice Thomas reimagining even the Supreme Court's own jurisprudence is really quite stunning and startling. All right, Aziza, you're getting to the dissent. Oh, well, uh, yeah, so, I mean, I will... The there's point I was just about so to... much there. Yeah, yeah there's a <coughs> lot there. Um, the point I was about to make was just to say that um, the, the thing that the dissent does that I really appreciate is say very clearly if we're going to go back to the founding of this country, if we're going to go back to the you know, 18th century, you have to remember who was in power then and who those laws were benefiting. And they say in a very explicit, a very clear way, they basically say only white men, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, but only white men were, you know, get, were benefiting from the legal system at that time. And, you know, we, if we continue to go back to that as our point of reference, that will be, that will be the kind of power structure that we're reproducing over and over again. And it is, it is what's happening. I think that's why so many of us are so aghast, because we can see it happening. And I, I appreciate that the, that the dissent, you know, really called them out on that. Erwin, mm -hmm. would you like to add? Sure. Ultimately, the question of abortion is who should decide before viability whether a woman can have an abortion. Should it be the woman to decide or the state to decide? And the majority says it's for the state to decide. They really give two reasons. One is they repeatedly say that the fetus is, quote, a potential life. And second, they say the only rights protected by the Constitution are those in the text or part of the original meaning or those with long history and tradition. If you put that together, the implications are frightening. It means that each state right now gets to decide for itself whether abortion is allowed. Mm -hmm. Over half the states will prohibit abortion. What it means is that in those states, women with resources can travel to states where abortion is legal, but poor women, teenagers can't. Michelle, in the article we wrote, we pointed out, before New York became the first state to legalize abortion in this country, 25% of the abortions in England were performed on American women. It wasn't poor women going to England for abortions. No, it wasn't. Also, what we're going to see is states adopting laws that regulate reproductive health in all sorts of ways. What's different now compared to 1973 is how much the conservative movement has embraced restricting reproductive choice. So you're going to see laws that prohibit the morning after pill, Yep. Laws that prohibit IUDs because they take effect after conception. Laws that regulate in vitro fertilization. Laws that make it a crime for a woman to cross state lines for an abortion. But beyond that, once the court says the only rights that are protected by the Constitution are those in the text or part of the original meaning or long history and tradition, no longer is there a right to contraception. No longer is there a right of consenting adults to engage in same-sex sexual activity. No longer is there a right to marriage equality. Once the court pulls this thread from the fabric, I don't know how the rest can stand. And Justice Thomas, in his concurring opinion, says the court should overrule all those decisions. Well, that's, that's right. But the majority, there would be those that would say that these rights that you've just talked about, Irwin, are protected because Alito, in the leaked draft opinion, and in this one, says we don't have to worry about contraception because that's different. 
don't have to worry about these questions with regard to marriage. So, Erwin, why do you look so doubtful, given that Alito said you don't have to worry or no one has to worry? The criteria that they articulate for rights doesn't give protection to the ones that I just mentioned. And what we learned from this case is it's a court that doesn't care about precedent. It's quite willing to overrule precedent when it gets in the way of what they want. So the just trust me by Justice Alito rings very hollow. Okay, let me open this up to others. Do you also think that it rings hollow as well, others on the panel? Yeah, I mean, I, I also I think it's especially rich coming from Justice Alito, who's yeah. written recently that he thinks that there is no right to marriage equality and that he mm -hmm. thinks that decision should be over. It was a dissenter in the cases that right, came before right. and, the court and, and addressing these issues. Exactly, and he and Justice Thomas, um, there was a case involving Kim Davis, some of you may recall, who was a, a woman who was refusing to grant <coughs> marriage licenses to same-sex couples. Her case went up to the Supreme Court the Supreme Court decided not to hear it. And Justices Alito and Thomas wrote separately essentially to say that Obergefell, the case that recognized marriage equality, was a monstrosity and should be overruled. And so the idea that somehow Justice Alito <coughs> is going to be the guarantor of that right going forward. Um, and to the extent that his answer, I think to the extent there's a real answer there, it's essentially that abortion is different because it's the taking of a human life. And it, it's not as if, if you go through door two, there's something on that side too, which is of course the personhood movement, because the end game for people who are opposed right. to abortion has never been the overturning of Roe. It's been the recognition of constitutional personhood, the idea that the word person in the 14th Amendment applies before birth, and that therefore abortion- Which is not what the 14th Amendment says, right. by the way. But th that's the argument. And if that argument, if the Supreme Court accepts that argument, the idea would be that abortion is unconstitutional in California, right? It's unconstitutional mm -hmm. everywhere. So the more Justice Alito leans on this, you know, you can trust me because this is actually about the inalienable rights of the unborn child. It's not as if that's going to reassure anyone either, right? I mean, the reassurance right. is not reassuring. Um, I Regina, wanted to go back to Mark. something that Erwin yes. said, because you had mentioned um, who gets to decide or who should decide in, these, in this case. And it, I read um, an interview that um, Justice... Ginsburg did where she was speaking about, I think it was in Chicago, speaking about how, um, you know, it, Roe is always on shaky ground. Of course, this was, uh, I think it was like five years. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, Roe is always on shaky ground. And she actually mentioned a case you mentioned, Michelle, in your book, um, the Struck v. Yeah, yeah, the case she, involving Captain Kathy Struck. Who um, got pregnant while in, the, I believe, the Navy. Um, and they said, well, you can um, have an abortion or you can lose your job, but you can't have a baby and keep your job and she wanted to um, but then before the court before the court had, had any involvement in it it was settled I think they changed their policy well yeah Fairland. so yeah the, the case of Captain Struck was the case that uh, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg before she became a judge and was at the ACLU hoped would be the case that the exactly. Supreme Court yeah. would actually hear uh, what many people don't know is that uh, the US military um, had abortions available. In fact, insisted that women in the military would have abortions when they were pregnant. So this case involving uh, Captain Kathy Struck, she actually wanted to remain pregnant and said, look, let me be pregnant. I will give the child up for adoption, but I don't want to have an abortion. And she lost over and over again in U.S. courts mm -hmm. because the military required women in service if you're pregnant, terminate that pregnancy. It was a case that didn't reach the United States Supreme Court because Roe was taken up and became a mood issue. But I bring it up because it is 
Roe was always about allowing doctors to make decisions for the people who wanted abortions. It was never the case that the person who got to decide was the person actually going to be carrying that pregnancy. And in the United States, which has strikingly high maternal mortality rates, is putting their life at risk if they do get pregnant and carry a pregnancy to term. And so I know like the Jane Collective, the feminist healthcare network that really centered the people who were getting those abortions in the experience of getting when they actually sought healthcare. Um, I, ho I hope that that's a vision for the future because it wasn't in Roe and now we don't have Roe, so where do we go? Yeah. Hopefully it's in actually having the person who gets to make the decision for themselves about their body being the deciding factor, not a doctor or a, you know, anyone else who would be involved in that, their husband. Um. <clears throat> that's such a critically important, uh, it's, it's an incrit critically important point just in terms of the trajectory over time reproductive health rights and justice is sort of tying what a woman may do to a third party involving her body, um, something that men never have to worry about, a third party uh, determining what they can do. Aziz, you wanted to add to that, then I'm going to go on to another set of cases. Oh, yeah. I, I, I just I kind of wanted to add to what Regina was saying, because um, you know, some, I know, Regina, you're working on abortion stories, and I think there, it's important to focus on that for a minute, because so often the voices of the people who actually get cited to at the Supreme Court, who get referred to the Supreme Court, aren't the voices of reproductive justice advocates. They aren't the voices of um, you know, women of color, of black women, of Latina women. In fact, those voices are written out in favor of Operation Outcry. You know, Operation Outcry gets cited at the Supreme Court. It got cited in Carhartt for evidence that abortion causes um, regret, you know, that women suffer the consequences of their abortion. So I just wanted to lift up your work for a second. Because and to so be clear, if you add that on, that that is actually inaccurate kind of Of course, of the, yeah, the, the yes, substance, I'm sorry, right? yes, yes, that is Because people are listening right now. Yeah. We want to make sure that yes, what the Supreme Court has cited actually is. Yeah, which is yeah. why it's so outrageous that they would cite to the brief of um, a, a right-wing organization that basically concert, uh, you know, sort of gets affidavits online um, of women to attest to the fact that they've regretted their abortion, and then they use that to cite, to make the claim, essentially, this is in Carhartt v. Gonzalez, you know, they use that to make the claim that women regret their abortions. Again, no cites to the public health literature, to the evidence. Ginsburg has a very long citation in her dissent in which she basically takes on this point. You know, if you're going to deal with this issue, then deal with it properly. Here's five, you know, not five million, but, you know, here's many citations to the literature that show that the women don't experience abortion regret. But to me, it's also a story about whose voices get promoted and legitimized at the Supreme Court um, and whose get erased. And just to clarify, it is my... It is my co-author for the book I'm working on, Renee Bracey Sherman, who, who works on abortion stories. And she actually, with her organization, We Testify, submitted an amicus brief, 6,000 people who've had abortions signed on to that letter saying, don't take away our rights, don't take away our health care. But of course, that wasn't yeah. mentioned at all in Alito's opinion. Yeah, the health say one thing to connect those <laughs> yes. to the, the Bruin yes. case, because this is back to the point that you just made so starkly about how for so many women, especially for black women, that pregnancy is actually life endangering. And what you get in Bruin is this kind of encomium to the right of self-defense, that we have a right to protect ourselves. And right, you know, the very next day the court says women don't have that right. They don't have that right at all. And so yes, when the dissent states the obvious in Dobbs and says, when you start 
pegging the rights to whoever was writing them in 1791, you are literally saying the only people that should have rights are white men. The only people who should get to defend themselves are going to be white men. And they know that the way that the world works is that when you say we're going to invoke the right of self-defense for black men, for instance, we know what the reality is, right? Try being just a young black boy who's not even holding an actual weapon and see how far that goes, much less respecting a black man's right to wander around the streets carrying a weapon. So the court is really signaling more strongly in this term than I think ever before who counts and who doesn't. They are really literally saying in Bruin, the only people who are going to be allowed to have self-defense is this small group of people. And the very next day, nobody should be allowed to, um, no, no woman should be allowed, no woman, no girl, no pregnant person should be allowed to have the same rights. And it doesn't matter you know, what right you think that they have, it's invisible now, right? There's a super right to guns and there is a non-existent right mm -hmm. to not have your body be used for purposes of enforced birth or to risk serious uh, harm to your health and to your, um, basically to your life. And so I think it really needs to be clear just exactly what the court is saying, who lives, who dies, who gets to defend themselves, who doesn't. Well, on that point. <laughs> The majority didn't spend much time at all uh, referencing maternal mortality. Mm -hmm. The United States is the deadliest place in the industrialized world for a woman to be pregnant, ranks 55th uh, in the world, not in company with um, Germany and France, et cetera, but actually in company of nations that still publicly stone and lash women to just add on to what you all were saying. Mark, did you want to add anything here before we transition? I'll just briefly say that uh, Senator Bill Cassidy, a Republican from Louisiana, was recently asked about his state's sky-high rates of maternal mortality and asked, well, isn't this going to become a much worse problem when women are forced to carry their pregnancies to term? And Senator Cassidy answered, well, when you remove black women from the statistics, our rates of maternal mortality is actually not that high. And I think that tells you everything you need to know about Republicans' it, views on this issue. It does. It, it says a lot. Actually, to, to just add to that before we move on, Mississippi, uh, the state that brought this uh, litigation that made its way before the court, in that state, black women, a black woman is 118 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. That's the level of this conversation that you're having. So thank you all very much uh, for, the decision, for discussing this decision on Dobbs. I know it's very important for this audience and also our viewing audience. Erwin, there were criminal justice cases as well that the court heard this term. Can you give us a sense of those cases? Because in the wake of the Bruin decision about guns, the Dobbs decision about abortion, and even the EPA case, it could have been missed just where we are in terms of criminal justice after this term with the court. I point to one case, and I think it fits the theme that we've been talking about. Please. It's a case called Vega versus Tico. It was argued by Paul Hoffman as a member of the faculty at UC Irvine Law School. Yes. <laughs> um, and Paul did a brilliant job. He did. What's involved here is a Supreme Court decision that everyone is familiar with, Miranda versus Arizona from 1966. Chief Justice Earl Warren there said that in custodial, police interrogation is inherently coercive. To lessen the coercion, 
police have to give warnings before questioning. And we're all familiar with those warnings from having watched police shows. Terence Tico was a nursing assistant at a hospital in Southern California. A patient accused him of inappropriately touching her. A police officer, a deputy sheriff, Carlos Vega, came to question him, took him into a small room, questioned him at length in a very intimidating and threatening way. At one point, he made a statement that appeared to be incriminating. He was prosecuted and he was acquitted by the jury. He then sued the police officer and said, under Miranda versus Arizona, you were required to give me these warnings. I was in custody. It was a coercive situation. You didn't do so. Therefore, since my constitutional rights are violated, you should have to pay me money damages. And the Supreme Court ruled six to three, again, split along the familiar ideological lines of all these other cases, that there can't be a civil suit for money damages for the violation of Miranda. Here, Justice Alito wrote for the majority. Justice Kagan wrote for the dissenters. Justice Alito said, Miranda versus Arizona doesn't create a constitutional right. It's just a prophylactic mechanism. Those are the words that the court uses over and again. And you can't have a civil suit for money damages to enforce a prophylactic mechanism. Now, the Supreme Court in Miranda couldn't have been clearer that the privilege against self-incrimination gives rise to the requirement for warnings. In United States versus Dickerson in 2000, the Supreme Court, in an opinion by none other than Chief Justice William Rehnquist, said Miranda is a constitutional right. I think here the court is reading Miranda out of the Constitution. It leaves victims of police abuse in this way without a remedy, but I also think it puts Miranda very much in danger for the future. Others comment on this, right? As Erwin mentioned, um, Everybody, right? Many people know about Miranda rights, right? Anybody who's ever watched Law and Order or any of the sort of uh, uh, TV shows that are based on that kind of model, how essential it is to get that warning from law enforcement. And even to think about Dobbs, how important it might be to get a warning from your doctor that anything that you say to your doctor could potentially be used against you later on uh, in a criminal or other proceeding. Others who might want to add to this. I just want to say that this is a textbook example of the way this court tees up major decisions. Because Vega, so beautifully described by Irwin, totally flew under the radar. It came down the same day as Bruin, the gun case, the day before Dobbs. But it was a major decision. It's and huge. Justice Alito seeded his opinion with all kinds of language that tees up a next case in which the court will say, because Miranda warnings are not a constitutional right, we have no power to enforce force them, and Miranda warnings are gone, are kaput. Mm -hmm. um, but most people are not reading the footnotes of Alito's opinions and not looking at what the court is doing. And so it is very careful and I think pretty clever about teeing up these major cases for future terms. And that just sort of goes to this broader theme that we've touched on a bit, which is that the court is, is ticking off these cases so quickly, but this is not the culmination of anything. This is the start of a new conservative revolution in the law. This is the opening act, and we are just at the very beginning. 
And you can look at Dobbs and Bruin as the beginning of something new, and Mary has spoken about this. You know, the court uses this language in these cases that is laying the groundwork for future, even more radical and expansive decisions. It is, it, we call it the YOLO court at Slate. It is flooding the zone with these huge decisions because, you know, the justices know that Clarence Thomas's arteries aren't going to stay clear forever. You know, they have a limited window in which they can act to accomplish all of these items on their agenda, and they are not wasting a second. And so don't let these cases like Vega go under your radar, because they are telling you where the court is going to go in the next term and the one after, and it is very frightening. You looked yeah. eager to join in there, Erwin, and Mary, yeah. perhaps you do too. Let's start with you, Mary, and then I'll turn to Erwin. Yeah, Irwin. I mean, I, I read Vega um, in concert with the court's decision on SB8, which we haven't talked about. SB8 was the Texas law you may have heard of that allowed literally anybody to sue doctors and a loose category of folks who were aiding and abetting. Mm -hmm. and, and I think um, Richard Fallon at Harvard has a piece coming out on this, but essentially the idea that even when the court says you still have a right, it's in the business of eviscerating your access to a remedy for that right. And Vega, so I don't know if the court's going to just go all the way to overruling Miranda or if it's just going to go further down this road of saying, sure, you have all these rights, but you know you can't go to federal court there's no money damages, you can't get an injunction, so you enjoy that right because you can't do anything. It's sort of like that, and as my grandmother would say that, and a dollar will get you a pack of gum, right? So um, I think that was another sort of way that Vega bothered me because the court has been on the side of sort of eroding or decimating constitutional remedies in ways that I find disturbing and I, I probably that I was more aware of because mm. the court did something similar, of course, in the SB8 litigation before just getting rid of Roe entirely. So if, if there's a repeat, it will be then overruling Miranda entirely. So Erin, is it as dark as what Mark suggests? I want to disagree with something Mark said and then agree with his larger point. I don't think this is the beginning of a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. We've had a conservative majority since 1971 on the court, and the court has been conservative for some time. Think of Citizens United in mm -hmm. 2010. Think of Shelby County in 2013. Oh, and I can give example after example. What's different now is the court is more conservative than it's ever been. And when you look at the five conservatives and here I'm talking about Thomas Lito, Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett. They are more conservative than any justices who've been on the court since the 1930s. And Chief Justice Roberts is virtually always with them, even though he didn't go as far in Dobbs as they wanted to go. Last Saturday, there was an article in the New York Times that said this was the most conservative court since the term since 1931, which tells us something. And I think where Mark is absolutely right is these five justices, or six justices, are just getting started. Next year, they've already got on the docket cases yes. about whether to overrule decades of precedent or the loud affirmative action. Does anyone in this room have doubt that they're gonna overrule those precedents and eliminate affirmative action? They have a case already on the docket about whether or not someone's religious beliefs give them the ability to discriminate against gays and lesbians. Does anyone in this room have doubt as to where they're going to go in that regard? They just took a case about so-called independent state legislature theory, which would say that courts can't enforce the Constitution, even when it's clearly violated, only the legislature gets to decide. I worry what the court's going to do there. So it's in that sense that I think that these justices are just getting started. 
And it's very dark times. Um, this is a time in which I need to begin wrapping up. It's gone by so quickly. And I want to ask you all about a silver lining. It's something that I do on my podcast. <laughs> you all are maybe thinking, is there a silver lining? Can there be? Um, but before I do, I want to touch on something that you've just mentioned, Erwin. Uh, and that is what we saw in the Dobbs decision, and we can see this theme throughout, is we'll turn this matter to states. We'll turn it to the political process. And something that you mentioned, Irwin, in the Shelby County decision, where it was this Supreme Court that dismantled key provisions of the Voting Rights Act, I can't help but think of what a cruel joke it was in Dobbs to say, just go and vote this, knowing that that is a case that came out of Mississippi, a place that just a generation ago, black people were forced or coerced to guess how many jelly beans in a jar in order to be able to vote, how many bubbles on a bar of soap in order to be able to vote, to recite the state's constitution in order to be able to vote, and being beaten in the process, something that Fannie Lou Hamer wrote about, and she cited in the lower court opinion that imposed an injunction against that state's legislation. So thank you for that. But now a silver lining, and very quickly, um, a silver lining, Mary Ann. Well, I think if we look <laughs> at the machinery of what is happening, what's been described here, the kind of ecosystem, um, the decimation of constitutional rights and who is, who is being excluded, of course it should remind us of times when things were dark and that civil disobedience was one of the things that helped lift us out. So I think one lesson, I don't know if it's a silver lining, but I think it is to be as uncompromising about justice um, as the conservatives currently are compromised by power. Okay. There are incredible activists who are tired, more tired than any of us could possibly be, who are still out there supporting people in every possible way. And I think in the same way, it's important that if you're feeling inspired and motivated to, to get out there to offer some relief, if, even if it's temporary. Um, but, you know, it's going to be all of us who get us free. Um, and so just using this as motivation to just continue to fight because we're, you know, it's, it's, the, it's our generation, it's future generations, and we all have to continue to fight because that's the only way through this. Mark. My silver lining is three words, Katanji Brown Jackson. <laughs> I think she is an incredible jurist. I think no matter how high your expectations are for her, she will exceed them. I think she will be one of the great justices of American history, and I could not be more thrilled to see her on the court. All right. Thank you, Mark. I think I'm one of those people that just always sees everything in movement, and I think we're seeing a lot of our institutional structures come into question and lose legitimacy. We're already dealing with the police, and we're rethinking the police, and we're having a national conversation with, about it. It's not always going the way people want it to go, but maybe the Supreme Court is next. You know, Maybe we're going to have a, a conversation about how to redo this court, yeah. make it better. 
Mary. Yeah, I was going to say something similar. I think it, it behooves progressives sometimes to remember that their rights never came from the Supreme Court. Even when the Supreme Court recognized rights, they were speaking in dialogue with broader movements. And it also, I mean, as a historian, I'm always remember how losing in row really energized conservatives in a way that winning never would have. And so the kind of pain of defeat, right, can be really generate something hopefully beautiful and important. And I think we're seeing some of that already, and hopefully we'll see more. My silver lining comes from the words of the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said, the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. The sweep of history has been tremendous expansion of freedom and equality. What's so shocking about Dobbs is one of the few times in history that the Supreme Court has taken a right away. I believe there will be a point, maybe not in my lifetime, when Dobbs is overruled. I believe there will be a point that these terrible decisions we've been talking about will be overruled but it'll only happen if all of us work to make it happen. Thank you, Erwin, for that. And I'll meet you with a Dr. King on that, Erwin, in 1966 and giving a speech in Wisconsin. Dr. King was asked why it was that uh, he was addressing issues such as uh, women's reproductive health, why it was that he was concerned about environmental justice, and why it was that he was concerned about workers. And he said, because I refuse to segregate my moral concerns. And I'll repeat that, I refuse to segregate my moral concerns and I thank you all for refusing to segregate your moral concerns and to be with me and our audience in Orange County today. Guests and listeners, that's it for today's very special episode of On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin, brought to you live from the Irvine Barclay Theater. This has been your host, Michelle Goodwin, reporting, rebelling, and telling it just like it is. On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin is a Ms. Magazine joint production. Kathy Spiller and Michelle Goodwin are our executive producers. Our producers for this episode are Roxy Zoll, Oliver Hogg, Nasima Lisabani, Allison Whelan, and Sophia Panagrahi. The creative vision behind our work includes art and design by Brandy Phipps, editing by Will Alvarez, as well as Natalie Paredes for this episode, music by Chris J. Lee, and social media assistant from Sophia Panagrahi. 